And that is what we remember this morning as we gather around this time here at the table. And what an amazing reality that God would welcome each of us to join him in this time. You know, I think about that is that night that Jesus was gathered there in the upper room with his disciples. They were observing kind of this pre-Passover. Uh, the Jewish time in their calendar and everything is very different than our own. Uh, you see, for the Jewish calendar in their time, their day began at sunset. And so Jesus is entering into his time with his disciples uh, in that evening, kind of this pre-Passover meal that the Jews would observe, and in there would be unleavened bread and, and wine, and, and, but they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't actually have the lamb. You see, the lamb was something that would be taken and eaten the next day as uh, the lamb would be sacrificed on their day of Passover, and that evening, um, as those would gather around uh, and families would then eat the lamb, the Passover lamb. And so Jesus here is with his disciples and there is no lamb on the table. And Jesus is taking this time of this pre-Passover dinner and he's, um, which would have been a reminder to the Jewish people of God's deliverance from Egypt. And Jesus, in that moment, he transforms that dinner to be about himself. Because it was all about himself. In fact, um, for centuries, the Jews had observed this Passover uh, marking the deliverance of God. But all of that was a foreshadowing of the perfect Lamb of God who would come. And so Jesus says he's there in the upper room that evening with his disciples. He um, breaks bread and he takes the cup. And in that, he um, uses those two things, those two elements there, if you want to Go ahead and open that if you haven't done so already. You can just pull back the top layer. You'll find a wafer there. And if you go another layer, you'll find the cup. Jesus takes those two elements of wine and bread to signify his life and to signify his blood that would be shed for us. And so as we gather here this morning, we gather around the table. Um, because who, who invites us to this moment is not the person you came with this morning. It's not a leader in our church. It's not me as your pastor. But it's Jesus and what he has done for us. And the time around the table is this picture of family. It's this picture of um, relationship. It's this picture of remembrance. Um, but for us, it, it is both a time of remembering uh, Christ's coming, his death, burial, and resurrection, but it's a time of anticipation. As we remember that um, the king reigns today, Jesus is coming back for his bride. Um, one day we will all be gathered together in heaven and with all brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, gathering before the throne of God in worship. I was out visiting uh, this past week, and um, um, in our visit, I was with a couple ladies, and one of the ladies was making some comments about something, and that she just didn't kind of get along with somebody, or didn't see eye to eye with somebody. The lady who was with me, she said, oh, but you will, one day, you will. She said, when you get to heaven, you will. And what a good reminder that... Um, you know, we in our denominationalism, in our fracturing of 
Uh, and, and it's all, I understand it. I really do understand. I don't know if I actually understand it. That's bad to say that. I don't understand it, but I do understand why. And, and, um, but, but when you get to heaven one day, you're not going to have these denominations separate by um, their creeds, their confessions. You're going to have one person in heaven. And it's people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And we'll be with brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I don't know if that excites you. Man, that should excite us. And it, and, it, and it should put for us perspective that this life is temporary. Uh, this life is full of hardship, challenges, suffering, difficulty. But one day God's making all things new. And there should be this understanding that like as we look forward to that, that we will all be brothers and sisters, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, those who have confessed with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, those who have confessed Jesus and have received his grace into their life, one day we will be with all of those brothers and sisters. And so, you know, actually, the time around the table is a, um, it's a time of introspection because it, it, it's, ch- it's challenging every one of us, those of you this morning who hold those two elements in your hand. It's challenging you to do two things. It's challenging you to look back and to think about the sacrifice of Christ, to remember his life, his death, his resurrection. It's causing you to remember the day that you received God's grace into your life for the first time. Do you remember the joy that came with that? Do you remember the peace that you received in that? Do you remember the hope that was yours in that moment? So we look back to remember the Christ, what Christ has done for us, but it also, in this moment, challenges every one of us as we gather around the table to think about what awaits us. And it actually challenges us on the level of not what we know about the Bible. It challenges us about how we obey and how we live the Bible. And so when we think about observing the table, it is an ongoing confession of what, has happened in our life by salvation is continuing to take place. What is that? We realize that uh, we are sinners in need of God's grace and that we in our lives and in our families and in our church, um, we sin and we sin against others. And we need God's grace. We need his forgiveness. And we need the reminder that the church is a family. And it's not just here but it's other brothers and sisters down the road from us. It's other tribes, tongues, and nations around the world. And it causes us to examine our life. That's why Paul says we don't take from the table in an unworthy way. What is he saying? We're not making a mockery of who Jesus is. And so if we're going to actually take from the bread and take from the cup and say that I've received God's grace, what Paul's saying then it, it should look like then in every one of your lives that we are living by grace and that we are extending grace and receiving grace and, and, that, and we are reminded that one day um, God's going to complete what he's begun in us. And I'm so thankful for that. Because what God starts, we, we heard it sung this morning, he finishes. And so Paul, as he was reminded of what Jesus had um, instructed him that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that um, 
he receives this instruction of how the church is to observe the table. And we do it in remembrance. Uh, We do it in remembrance of Jesus. And so in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said, I received of the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And he gave thanks for it. And then he takes this cup and he um, tells us to do it in remembrance of him. I'm going to ask Jessica to play quietly and for you to bow your head there before the Lord. And let this be a time of heartfelt, genuine examination of our lives. This moment should not... Um, the tone of the moment should not be shame. Uh, The tone of the moment shouldn't be regret. Uh, The tone of the moment shouldn't be sorrow. But it should be joy in the presence of the Holy Spirit. It should be um, a confessing of sins, knowing that there is one who is able to forgive you and who cleanses us far deeper. He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And so would you just call out to God in your life? Confess your sins, knowing that God forgives. Ask for the Spirit of God to renew your heart. Ask for the Spirit of God to cleanse you. Ask for the Spirit of God to help you to live for Jesus, to walk in obedience of Him. Father, thank you so much for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. Thank you that it reaches down, Lord, into the mire of our souls. And it restores us, it redeems us, it cleanses us, it renews us. Gives us joy and hope and peace. And Lord, this is a time of thanksgiving. And so, Lord, we just respond to you this morning as your people. We say thank you. Thank you for a gift that we do not deserve. Thank you for a joy that should not be ours. Thank you for a hope that awaits us. We ask these all in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Paul tells us that we are to observe the table and how do we do it? Paul says, I received the Lord, which I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, Jesus took this cup and he transformed on that night there with his disciples. This cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as we do that, we proclaim Jesus' death till he comes. I'm going to invite the choir to come back and uh, to conclude our time of singing. 
in worship in the song that he is worthy. And so as they are coming, may the words of this song, may the message of what is communicated in it, be a reminder to each one of us that he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of my life. He is worthy of my devotion. He is worthy of my worship. And as they sing, and as they lead us in this song, reminding us of who Jesus is, I pray that there would be a personal response from your own heart uh, to the Lord in all of this. Light from 
Take out your Bible with me to the book of John, John's Gospel, John chapter 13 this morning. We'll read this in just a moment together, John chapter 13. I love listening to a podcast by Steve Cust. I think I've talked about this at least one time before. He has a tremendous podcast uh, entitled Managing Leadership Anxiety. How many of you ever have listened to that podcast? Wow, not many of us. So um, if you haven't, I would highly recommend it to you. Uh, Steve Cuss, Managing Leadership Anxiety. Um, he has uh, this thing that he interviews guests, and uh, all of it's about anxiety and, and how we manage that, how we uh, find real solution in that. And um, every one of his podcasts, as he has a guest on the podcast, he ends by running them through the gauntlet of questions. And he just has this rapid-fire question, and uh, they answer. And at the very end, nearly every time, uh, a question that he asks, every one of his guests is something similar to this. They'll ask him, he said, when was the last time you felt most fully and completely loved? I want to ask you that question this morning. When was the last time that you felt most fully and completely loved. We're going to be in John's Gospel this morning, and the story is uh, really, just as Luke's Gospel that we read earlier, uh, John's Gospel here is also a shift in the narrative. Um, Everything up until John 13, John was writing and bringing really hand-selecting stories about the life and ministry of Jesus. And he tells us in the very end of his gospel, why is he hand-selecting certain events? Certainly he could have told us so much more about the life of Jesus and his ministry, but why does John include the things he does? He tells us in the very end of his gospel that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so the first 12 chapters of John's gospel center on Jesus' life, his ministry, select stories from things that John handpicks to include so that we might know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But when we get to John chapter 13, the whole shift in the narrative happens, and we're not talking about any more uh, years or weeks or months of the life of Christ, but now we're centering in on just a few days and and really uh, hours of Jesus' life. The Bible says in verse 1, if you notice that there in your Bibles in John chapter 13, the Bible says now before the feast of Passover, so this was that pre-Passover dinner, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. Say the next phrase with me. He loved them to the what? To the end. Let's say that again. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Jesus knows. He knows. Jesus knows that his hour has come and that he would soon be departing out of this world to the Father, that in a few hours, Jesus would be suffering, agonizing, dying. He would be giving up his life for the sins of the world. He gave himself, the Bible says in Galatians, he 
giving himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of the Father. And the Bible says that he loved them to the end. This isn't talking about time as like chronology of Jesus's um, love. It's not just saying that Jesus loved them to the end of his life. What Jesus is saying here is that he loved them to the fullest. Jesus loved them to the fullest amount possible, to the greatest extent that here, this one who in self-giving, sacrificial, unconditional love would demonstrate that love. And he would love them to the end, the Bible says. So when was the last time you felt most fully and completely loved? And whatever that is, can I just remind us all this morning that that is just a good gift from the Father, but that Jesus himself loves us far deeper, far more fully and completely than we can imagine. This morning, Jesus, uh, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you've said, Uh, Regardless of how you've acted, regardless of of the things in your life that uh, you feel like may be hindering you uh, from experiencing this, no, my friend, Jesus loves you fully, and he loves you as much as you could quite possibly be loved. I, I, I think about this all the time when I'm putting Ashlyn to bed at night. And as a father, I think about this deep love that I have for my daughter. I think about just, ugh, I just there's this sense in which there's this deep love. And, and I'm just reminded as I think about Jesus that he loves me more fully, more completely, more deeply. He loves me to the fullest extent possible because he is perfect in love. He is sacrificial in love. This is who he is. Many of us grew up singing the song that I teach Ashlyn, or we sing together, and that is, Jesus loves me. No, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. What tells me about the love of God? The Bible. Do you know that God loves you this morning? Some of us know it. We hear it said. We know it intellectually that God loves us. We know that he loves us. The Bible tells us throughout so many different chapters of expressing the way that God loves us. The Bible says in Matthew 10, he loves us so much, he knows the hairs that are on my head and he has them numbered. And Jay's making that a lot easier for the Lord than for some of us. He loves us so much, he's engraved our name on the palm of his hand, Isaiah says. He loves us so much that he stores, he saves our tears in a bottle, the psalmist says. Jeremiah says he loved us with an everlasting love. God's love is very personal to us. Regardless of where we've been, what we've said, what we've done, what we feel like we should experience from God, the fact of the matter, the Bible declares this throughout page to page, that God loves you. 
that God loves us. The Bible says, you say, I don't, I don't really know about that. Let me tell you what the prophet Isaiah says. This is what God feels about you. This is what God feels about you. That you are honored and precious in his eyes. You are honored, valued, and precious in the eyes of God. And Jesus loves infinitely, unconditionally, sacrificially. You say, are you sure? Yeah. Because guess who's in the room with the disciples? Who's in the room that Jesus is about to demonstrate his love to that we would probably say certainly doesn't deserve it? Judas. Like, they all didn't deserve it. But we would all say Judas especially doesn't deserve it. And yet he's in the room. Jesus knows, the Bible says, notice in verse 3, during supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's brother to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back from God. Notice what does Jesus do in verse 4? He rose from supper, he lay aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You say, are you sure that God loves unconditionally? Yeah. Look at just this story. Look at just the story of Jesus and his disciples as they come into the upper room that night. They're observing this pre-Passover. It is supposed to be an intimate time. It is supposed to be a time of remembrance. It's supposed to be a time of celebrating God's deliverance. And it was this kind of sacred, special time as, as Jesus is just gathering with his 12 there in the upper room to observe this meal. And, and you know, the tone of the evening was that the disciples came into the room and guess what they're doing? They're arguing, they're arguing, they're arguing, bickering back and forth. I mean, any of you ever driven in a family van with like kids going at it in the back seat? This is 12 grown men who are just going at it. They're arguing about something and the thing they're arguing about, anybody know? What was the argument centered on? Who was what? Who was the greatest? So they're coming in to this very sacred time to observe the Passover and to enjoy this meal together and they're bickering and they're arguing and they're publicly backstabbing and listing all the ways of why they're more prominent, more significant, more better. I'm sure they were recounting all of the stories of Jesus sending them out in 72 and telling their wondrous sign stories of what God had done through them and being like, hey, hey, did you do this? I'll one-up that, uh, you know. Peter's like, I raised somebody from the dead, you know, and they're just like going back and forth and they're arguing about who is the greatest. In the midst of the argument, in the midst of this bickering and back forth, Jesus does something completely unthinkable. The rabbi rises from the table and he kneels down and he takes a basin of water and a towel. And he walks up to one of the twelve. And he kneels down in front of him. And, and, and I don't know what's happening in the room, what the conversation... I, I, I think they're probably all still going at it. When Jesus comes to Peter and he kneels down and 
And Peter's like, what? You know, and then the whole room sees what Jesus is doing. And the whole room recognizes that, that Jesus now kneels and he begins to wash feet. You say, why, why are they washing feet? I, we don't wash feet. That seems kind of strange. What's happening here? Well, Jesus and his disciples um, are walking on dirty, dusty roads, and they don't have any Nikes. They don't have any uh, special sneakers. You know, they, they, they got sandals, and, uh, and their feet are dirty. I mean, on a regular day, you walk through the dusty, dirty streets of Jerusalem, the dust alone would be just like caked on there. Imagine rain, water, animals, livestock. Um, the, 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 the feet were dirty. And, and, and what was actually custom at the time is that when you came into a house, there would be in every Jewish home this large basin of water and visitors would wash, uh, have their feet washed. And it was customary that at the time, the, the lowest person in the house, the servant or the slave of the house, uh, maybe the guest who had welcomed them, but certainly more than likely uh, it would have been for someone like a servant and especially like a formal meal like this, like this pre-Passover dinner, uh, would have more than likely had somebody there to help serve in all of this. But, but in the text, we we're, read that there was no one there that night. It was just Jesus and his disciples. And so in coming into the room, their feet were just, just dirty and dusty. They gathered around the table and, and had uh, been in that posture to eat their meal with dirty feet. And something unthinkable happens. The rabbi gets up and he goes to his disciples and he one by one, can you imagine the time this would have taken? As Jesus goes through all 12, even Judas, washing their feet. This is the creator of the universe. This is the one who gives life to the dead. This is the one who raises dead people. This is the one who heals all diseases, who feeds the 5,000. He, he rises from the table. He takes the form of a servant and he washes their feet. He does the lowest of the low. He, he does the dirtiest job. Can you imagine what the disciples must have felt? Can you imagine how in that moment, Jesus, in the midst of their bickering and arguing, and, and they're jockeying for position. Could you imagine what it must have been like for Jesus just to kneel down and how that must have just stunned their heart? How it must have just gripped them as in that moment, there's just this sense of regret. There's this sense of sorrow. There's this feeling that, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, I just, I missed it. I mean, they were all arguing for who's the greatest, and Jesus had been teaching for weeks up until this point that the greatest is the one who serves, the greatest is last. I mean, Jesus had been doing all of this teaching, and, and you would think they got there at the dinner table, and someone's like, I'm going to show them who's the greatest, even if it was the wrong motive, man. They would have gone and washed the feet. They would have done something like that. They don't do that. Jesus does. He's the one who should have his feet washed. And if there was no servant in the house, then certainly one of the disciples should have risen up to do it. But they don't. And in that, Jesus is demonstrating for us this act of sacrificial, unconditional 
love. He is teaching by showing them. This was a painful lesson, I'm sure, for the disciples. So what's our lesson in it? What is this story about Jesus and the disciples have to do with you and me? I wonder, are there those of us who are trying to stand on our dignity when we ought to be nailing down to serve someone else? Are some of us hung up over our own rights, privileges, what we think we're due? You know what Jesus would call us to do? To serve. To love by serving. To kneel down, to take this posture in such sacrificial love. To take the model of Jesus. To take up the example of Jesus. Jesus washed their feet and in so he was, he was telling them something. We don't have time for all of that this morning. I know the time. But in John chapter... Um, 13 verse 7, Jesus, he comes to Peter and he tells Peter, he says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. You see, the fact of the matter is, is that all of us need to be cleansed because all of us are filthy before a holy, righteous God. Jesus is telling Peter, he says, Peter, if I don't cleanse you, you don't have any part of me. You share not in me. And the reality is still the same today. If you have not come to be cleansed, by the forgiveness in receiving the gift of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, my friend, you don't share any part of the kingdom. You don't share any hope of what Jesus has done for us. But we have to have that time in our life, that moment of cleansing, that moment that Jesus is talking about here so that we can be made right and be made acceptable to God. When the Bible talks about the love of God, it makes a beeline in every instance to the cross of Christ. First John says, in this is love. That God's love was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, amen. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So has there been a time in your life you heard sung about this morning this power of the gospel, what Jesus has accomplished. My question, though, is individually, have you experienced that? Has the cleansing of Jesus happened in your life? And if it has, my friend, Jesus this morning is calling us to live a different way. He is calling us to model the example that he modeled for us. He says, notice in your Bible, find verse 16 of the same chapter. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you, a servant is not greater than his master." nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent me. Notice verse 17. This is the key in all of this. If you know these things, blessed are you if you what? Do them. Jesus doesn't tell us we're blessed if we know them. We're not blessed if we hear them. We're not blessed if we watch somebody else do them. We are blessed when we do them. You see, this is what a Christian is all about. Somebody who's received the grace of God to do God's grace, to do works of grace in their life. Jesus said in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Love one another just as I've loved you. 
you're also loving me. By this, Jesus says, will all people know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus lived his entire life as a lesson to us. The picture in John 13 is Jesus, Jesus showing us what love really looks like. What does love look like? Love looks like someone else serving someone else. It looks like somebody who has the right, has the privilege, whatever it is, uh, stepping aside from that to serve someone else. By this will all men know that you're my disciples. How? With your love for one another. What does this call us to as a church? It calls us to be people of service. It calls us to lay aside our privileges, to lay aside our preferences, to lay aside our opinions, to lay aside our what we think is our dignity, our right, for the betterment of someone else, for the love of someone else, for the service of someone else, and that we would do it as Jesus has done. Jesus is arguing from the greater to the lesser. You see, if the God of the universe who fashioned you and created you and made you and formed you and set his love upon you, would demonstrate his love in coming and identifying and serving and dying. That is the depth of our love for one another. And not just the people we like, (laughs) but our enemies. Because by that, that type of Jesus said, well, all men know that you're my disciples. So where does this challenge us? It challenges us on the level of our service. Let me ask you this. What would it look like in your life today to lay aside what you think you deserve? To lay aside what you think you want? And actually go out of your way to serve somebody without expecting anything in return? You know, if we do that today and if we do that tomorrow and if we do that over this week and we begin to create a culture in this church of service and love, people walk in this room and they're not even going to wonder. They're going to say, these people know God because God's love is manifested in them. It's not just manifested in this building. It's manifested in your family and in your community and in your relationships. And people will say, That person's different. They're in the Father's business. And they're loving God's people. And they're loving God's children. We were reminded yesterday, I'll close with this, as we were gathered with 50 other missions leaders and 17 other churches and our missions committee, our staff gathered to talk about uh, being in a workshop, learning about how we can better reach the nations as a church. In our time together, we were just reminded of the fact that when the gospel goes into places, it improves the society of those places. It changes the culture of those places. We don't go into places trying to change a culture for the better. We go into a culture bringing the gospel, but when we do bring the gospel into a new culture or a new place, with it comes this new atmosphere, this new quality of life. Why? Because we're caring for God's people and we're representing God. And the same is true in our life. The same is true in our church. If we are representing Jesus to other people, 
the joy, the quality of life, the, the fellowship, the, the unity, everything will grow. Because it's no longer about me. It's not about you. And it's, it's not about you or, or about your family. It's, it's, about, it's about God's kingdom. And it's about something that's eternal. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the truth of the gospel. God, thank you for this morning reminding us about your love. Help us, Father, to be the kind of people that extend and give grace. God, help us to uh, model your love this week in serving. Whether that's doing something, saying something, being something, God, that you would help us today or this week to model your love to other people. We thank you and ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.